You're listening to Dr. Ward Bond's Life-Changing Wellness, the fastest-growing natural health, nutrition, and inspiration podcast in the nation. Uplifting stories, powerful messages, and triumph over adversity, the experience of entertainment and encouragement is about to begin. And now your host, Dr. Ward Bond. Jerry Schilling met Elvis when he was just a boy, and Elvis was a teenager. And he met him on one of the last weekends before Elvis became Elvis. Jerry knew Elvis for 23 years, and in those years, he grew up with him, lived with him, worked for him, learned from him, and even laughed with him and shared one amazing experience after another. And Jerry Schilling is more than just being a close friend to Elvis Presley. Jerry is a movie and television producer, a film editor, and the manager of the legendary Beach Boys, and so much more. Priscilla Presley said, Jerry Schilling is authentic, honest, a purity of a man who truly loved his friend Elvis. And Lisa Marie Presley says, Jerry tells the story of her father with humility, honesty, and dignity. And even Bono of U2 was quoted to say, Jerry Schilling brought grace to Graceland. Well, Jerry Schilling's life has spanned from the early days of Guthrie Park, playing football with Elvis in North Memphis, to standing in the White House with the most powerful man in the United States, and I'm not talking about President Nixon, I'm talking about the greatest entertainer in the world, Elvis Presley. So without further ado, let's welcome the closest and most loyal friend to Elvis, the man himself, Jerry Schilling. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Ward. I got a lot to live up to for that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, um, read your book and uh, what a life, what a story that you have to tell over and over again. And, and I want to ask you, because the moment you heard That's All Right, Mama, the night Dewey Phillips played the song on the radio, in your book you said it gave you hope. What did you mean by hope? It was, uh, I was a very lonely uh, young kid. My mother died when I was an infant. I was living with relatives and poor North Memphis, where Elvis grew up too. But I got a lot of love, but I didn't have much hope. I was a very sickly kid. Uh, uh, I had no friends, uh, no personality, still working on that. And um, I had been listening to Dewey Phillips for two years, since I was 10 years old, uh, because he was playing exciting mu music, you know, rhythm and blues and Anything that your parents or relatives wouldn't want you to listen to, Dewey was playing. And so I've been listening to it for close to two years when one night he uh, played this record from a boy from Hume's High. Well, I live two blocks from Hume's High. From my grade school, you can see, literally see Hume's and vice versa. And my mother had gone to Hume's, my cousins were going to Hume's. And it was after he played the record and then the light started coming up and he played it again. And now legend has, that's all he played, but <laughs> you, you know how that goes. But he did play it, you know, three or four times. And uh, because of the response, he got in touch with Sam Phillips, uh, who got in touch with Vernon and Gladys Presley because Elvis knew the record was going to be played that night. He was so nervous, he went to a movie theater. And so they found him, and Dewey brought him on the show, and he was a nervous wreck. 
and Dewey was just talking to him, and Elvis didn't know that the interview was going on at that time. And what was really cool about him is I was looking for heroes. I think young kids do that. And I was an early Brando, James Dean, whatever. And this, this guy, the way he talked was like James Dean at that time. He kind of stuttered, he kind of mumbled, and, and the music was really cool. And that's the most hope of excitement I had experienced as a kid. Now, my life got much better after that. <laughs> you know, I, uh, at the time, I was a good little Catholic boy, and I'd go to bed, because Dewey's show went over until midnight. And uh, I said a little prayer, hey, God, this, the neighborhood's not that big. I'd like to meet this boy from Dean's High. No, and that would never happen. And of course, uh, the next day, I go to Guthrie Park that you mentioned, uh, and uh, by myself, and there were five older guys trying to get up a football game. They, they didn't have six people because nobody knew who Elvis was yet. They just, no, nobody had seen him. They just played the record, you know, that night or the night before. And uh, Red West, who was a big Queens High football player, uh, knew my older brother and he said, Jerry, uh, do you want to play with him? Wow, I'm going to play football with Red West. I'm in grade school. He's an all Memphis high school player. Get in the huddle, choose up sides. There's only three of us and three of us. And I realized that my quarterback was the boy from Hills High. I mean, there was no high collars, there was no, nobody, he just had it. You know, movie stars and recording artists, they get a certain well-deserved uh, charisma after a while or something close to it. Uh, here's a guy that didn't even have a hit record, uh, had done, but he had it. I mean, the hope I had had listening to the record, he became uh, my hope uh, because I could tell after we played a couple of hours, uh, he kind of liked that I thought he was cool before it was popular. I could kind of tell we hit it off a little bit, you know, for an older kid and a young kid. And then he said, you know, you want to play next week? And I said, trying to be cool, you know, and say, yeah, I know, you know, what time? Man, I was there two hours before, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was a great start of a great friendship, uh, a great ride. I've been extremely blessed. Uh, and Elvis is kind of, in a certain way, my relationship with Elvis has given me a backstage pass to other artists and producers. And, I think they feel, hey, if he was cool with Elvis, he's got to be okay. And then it was up to you to prove yourself, you know, yeah. you know, if you're managing Jerry Lee Lewis or, you know, producing film or whatever. So, well, when did the actual roller coaster ride with Elvis really begin for you? I mean, was it that time at Guthrie Park, or was it just a special moment when it just took off and it was you and Elvis being friends for the next 23 years? I think it started at Guthrie Park. Uh, obviously, his career 
started off pretty fast, and uh, he was controversial. Not everybody liked him at that time. Certainly some of the guys didn't like him because of their girlfriends liking him. Most of the guys didn't, and every guy that I got they got to know him really liked him. But he really had a close-knit group of friends uh, that were his, about his age that he trusted uh, that later became the Memphis Mafia. And I, uh, you know, was included in that. I couldn't, you know, within a few months, some of them went on the road with him, like George Klein. I couldn't do that, I was too young, I was in grade school. But, uh, you know, within a few months he was so popular that he couldn't go to a movie theater. So he would rent the Miffian Theater at nighttime, around midnight. I was always welcome. Uh, we played football every Sunday he was in town. And then we, we played daytime at Guthrie, we were so into it, we go to Whitehaven because they had lights on the field at Whitehaven High School, and we continued playing. So there was football games in the 50s, 54, 55. It was, uh, he started renting the amusement park, you know, maybe once a week after it closed. And it's great to be on, you know, a Ferris wheel or a Pippin at midnight. And, uh, you know, with a group of friends, you know, we just go from ride, you know, to ride for hours. Uh, and then in 57, when he bought Graceland, uh, I was pretty much uh, a welcomed guest any night I went up there, which I went up there quite a bit. So what did uh, you do? What did you do when Elvis was drafted into the army? So Elvis was drafted, what, for two years? What, what did you do for those two years? Well, I, I, I went to high school. Uh, I got healthier. I, I'd gotten a lot of hope and it was kind of cool that Elvis became this big star and he was my friend. And uh, I played high school football. I was all Memphis like Red West. I got a scholarship to the University of Arkansas State. Uh, and I had planned on, you know, uh, being a history teacher and, and, and potentially a football coach. Elvis came back in 60, uh, and, you know, I went up to the house, I guess the second day he was back in town, and, uh, you know, he really, uh, there was a maturity from when he left Memphis. Uh, it's almost like he left as, as, as James Dean, and he came back as John Wayne. He was very confident, and part of that confidence was in his off time in Germany uh, as a soldier, he had this guy, great uh, karate instructor that would come to the house that he rented at nighttime off the base. And as Elvis did anything, he always did it to extreme hours. And boy, he was really good. So I go up to Graceland. I hadn't seen Elvis in two years, you know, Obviously, he remembered because when you go down to the gate, they say, so-and-so's here. Uncle Vestro will say, you know, Jerry, so-and-so's here. Have him come up or, we're, you know, we're not doing anything tonight, whatever it was. So I go up there, and he's doing a karate demonstration in the living room. And uh, I go in, 
And uh, uh, first thing he does is, it's like we were just together yesterday. When, hey man, you know, uh, stand there, I'll show you something. And he started doing this karate stuff. And he uh, <laughs> accidentally, but not badly, hit me in a very, kicked me in a very private place. So that was, uh, and he was like, oh, you're okay, you know. But that was my welcoming, welcoming uh, back to Graceland uh, with Elvis in, in 1960. Well, you then, know, uh, yeah, go uh, ahead. Go ahead, Will. Well, I was going to ask you about, uh, you know, people people imagine Elvis, you know, again, he's, he is still to this day the world's greatest entertainer, even though he's been gone for 45 years. I don't think anybody can ever feel that persona that Elvis brought to the world. And I've always wondered, because in your book, um, you made a mention that Elvis was probably the most underrated producer in music. Why was he so underrated as a producer? Well, you know, Elvis came from the generation uh, that was changing, you know, uh, but he came from a generation where singers sang the songs, writers wrote the songs, and producers produced the songs. That was everybody, not, not just Elvis. You know? uh, and um, I, I think as Sam Phillips really produced Elvis because Sam Phillips who was a genius, uh, he knew to let Elvis do what he wanted to do. After he found Elvis fooling around, you know, because Elvis went into the sun and was doing everything on the hip parade at Snoopy Lansom and, you know, Dean Martin or whatever. And, you know, Sam was looking for something different because he was only doing R&B arts, black artists. And uh, so when Elvis took the break with Scotty and DJ, and they started doing That's All Right. That's when Elvis came out, I mean, that's when Sam came out of the control room and said, what are you doing? So from that moment on, Sam knew that Elvis had something special, and Sam supported that. Uh, I don't think anybody produced Elvis. He had good producers, almost like executive producers, you know. Uh, Chips Norman in American Studios, great producer. But his producing was getting Elvis great material, letting Elvis choose uh, between publishing and great material. So, and to get right down to your question, being in the studios from Hollywood to Nashville and in between, and spending a lot of hours watching Elvis record, watching everybody, seeing how the process uh, took place. Elvis was the greatest unknown producer. First of all, he knew how to pick the material. He also knew how to pick the right musicians, the singers, and he sure as hell knew how to sing. And that was a natural thing. So when you sit and you watch him choosing material, we would go into a little office. And Elvis normally 
unless it was something special he had from high school or something. First time he heard the music is when we got to the studio, going in the office, and he would listen, and he would say, hey, let's try this one. Send it out to, to the band, you know, you know, start making up some charts or whatever, and he would go out and try it. Um, but while he was doing that, he picked the material, he had the musicians that he wanted to work with, a lot that he admired as a kid, as far as the singers, uh, you know. And uh, he would say, hey, let's try, well, let's do it a little, you know, can we slow this part down a little bit? Wait a minute, I hear voices. Hey, girls, can you come in here? Okay, there's where I want. He was producing. Nobody else in that studio was doing that, you know. So, uh, and you listen to, and especially after uh, RCA bought uh, the Sun catalog from Sam Phillips, they really, they really did not know what to do with Elvis at that time. Uh, I don't think, it, you know, he was so different. Uh, and that's where Elvis had to really be the producer. And uh, when you said Elvis, he, you said Elvis chose the material. Um, did anybody else have any say as to what songs Elvis would sing? at all um or did elvis had full full control on what songs he chose uh unfortunately elvis did not have he had full control of what he was able to listen to to choose but there was a whole behind the scenes business thing going on where the publishing company if a certain writer didn't get 50 percent or whatever the percentage was uh, of the publishing to Helen Rains uh, or Gladys music or Elvis Presley music, that music would never get to Elvis's ears, and he didn't know that. Oh. So he had control over what was presented to him. Uh, there were two major issues. Uh, one was, and that's why I mentioned uh, uh, Chip's moment earlier. Uh, George Klein, our friend, who went to high school with Elvis, who was a great disc jockey as well, pioneering. George uh, and Marty Lacker, one night we had dinner at Graceland, and uh, said, and, and uh, American Studios was getting really hot with uh, Neil Diamond and you know, a lot of artists. And said, Elvis, I think you should. Uh, why, don't, why don't you record in Memphis? Now that's a very dangerous thing for any friend of Elvis or whatever to say, because a big business would say, "Hey, stay out," you know, whatever. And Elvis thought about it and said, "Okay." Now, when Elvis made a decision, big business or nobody messed with it. Elvis was not a weak human being; he was a strong guy but he could only deal strongly with the information he was given. So, George told Chips, the producer, said, if you want to talk to Elvis, don't do it around everybody. Just say, can I talk to you privately? 
And so Chip said, Elvis, uh, can we have a chat? And Elvis said, sure. So they go into the room and Chip says, Elvis, I have two stacks of records here. Your publishing company owns this stack of records. I don't hear any hits. The other, I have hits, you own no publishing. What do you want to do? Elvis said, I want hit records. They had seven, could be eight, major hits out of that one recording session. Now you would think that that would be the next place that the next session would go. No, because the machinery, you know, took over. And uh, and part of the machinery was good for Elvis. I'm not putting it all down. I mean, yeah. you know, part of uh, how Elvis Presley Enterprises uh, uh, and ABG can deal today with certain lights and stuff is because Colonel Parker, because of those publishing deals, you know, you have to get those approvals. You need that music to do a Baz Luhrmann film or to do it. TV show like I, I did in Memphis, uh, the ABC television series years ago. So, what you know is it's a it, well, it's a fine line between management, business, and creativity. It's a very gray line, and you have to know when to stay away, when to step in, and when to let your artist be a butterfly or, or let him be a worker. And uh, I'm still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what what did the, the studio think? What did Colonel Parker think when Elvis wanted to do a gospel album? The very album that won him the Grammys. I think uh, Colonel was very supportive of the gospel album. You know, he, he wanted that image for Elvis, but he had nothing to do with it. So Elvis was like, until Elvis chose it, and then Colonel really supported it, uh, loved it, and uh, uh, I, 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 nobody had a problem with that. Uh, and uh, everybody was supportive. Studios had nothing to do with that. This was Elvis's recording career. They had something to do with soundtrack albums for movies they were doing. But this was the record company, this was Elvis, this was the publishers. You know, uh, Helen Range was a very credible publishing company, and, uh, very old school. So, yeah, it was um, the gospel. And I had the opportunity on the first session when I went to work for Elvis, 1964. Uh, we, we went in the bus, Elvis drove up to Nashville, and uh, I was there. The other guys had been to so many recording sessions, and I'm the new kid on the block, you know, as far as on the road. And they always play poker out, out in the lobby. I'm, I'm like watching how this process is taking place. I mean, it's like going to a Broadway show, and you're all excited about the show that you're going to see. And you can hear the musicians in the orchestra tuning up. Well, that's how it was watching, you know, the stands or, you know, the uh, Jordanaires and uh, Floyd Kramer and Roots Randolph and 
you know, all these great Chet Atkins, all these great working out stuff. So I'm sitting there in the studio, just mesmerized. And then Elvis records how great they are. And um, is the greatest concert that wasn't a concert that I ever saw in my life. Uh, I happened to be on the other side of the room. And Elvis saying that was so powerful. And with all of his heart, Lord, at the end of it, he turned ghostly white. It was like his soul left his body. Went down on his knees and he looked up. I just happened to be on the other side of the room and he did his little boy smile. He knew he had accomplished something great. And I got to observe that. And, uh, and lo and behold, that was his first Grammy and one of only three which were all gospel. Wow. And even when he's saying how great thou art, even in concert, I mean, the intensity that, that poured out of him. I mean, where did that intensity come from? Well, I would have to say it came from God. You know, it was a spiritual thing that you can't explain. Uh, I'm not that, I'm not a great religious person, but there are certain things that make you feel religious and make you believe and give you hope. And what Elvis did, you'll never walk alone. How great thou art! Uh, it was it was pretty spiritual. Yes, and it still is today. Now, uh, in your book, you mentioned the '68 TV special, which a lot of people now call it the comeback special, but it originates a '68 TV special. And in your book, you you said that it was the first time somebody let Elvis be Elvis. Your words. Who was that somebody? I would have to give credit to three people. Uh, uh, the producer at NBC, trying to think of his name, uh, did go to Colonel Parker about not just having a, a Christmas special, but having a, an Elvis special with a Christmas song. And God, I wish I could remember his name. And then he hired, and Colonel agreed to, then he hired two young producers, uh, Steve Bender and Bones Howell. And they had done the Tammy special, which was a great music rock show. Rolling Stones, I think, first appearance. Uh, on stage at the Forum in America. Uh, and I went there on one of the first days uh, that I was in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, Alan Forrest, who worked for the office, took care of all the transportation. So he said, you want to go motorcycle ride? So I got on the back of the motorcycle and we went around Hollywood and wound up at the Forum. And there was all this music and people running into a bus and Alan knew everybody. Because everybody knew he was with Elvis. And, uh, uh, and this group came in, and where, ironically, I didn't know until I started managing years ago, the Beach Boys were performing on that show as well. 
So, and here I am, 16 years of management with the Beach Boys. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was a real exciting time. Well, in the movie, in the brand new Elvis movie. Well, let, me, let me finish it. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, the 68 comeback. I would have to say that the person that maybe one-on-one was Steve Bender. You know, it was Steve who said he saw them fooling around rehearsing backstage. It was Steve's idea to bring that out and have friends and everything. And Steve Bender uh, and Bones Howe, uh, who had been an engineer at Radio Reporters, where Elvis had done in the, in the 60s, mid-60s, a lot of his reporting for the movie soundtracks. So it was a pretty sophisticated group of people. Wow, so in the movie, in the new movie Elvis, and there's that whole storyline about the 68 TV special. Um, was was that storyline in the movie, was that pretty much true to life? I think the storyline in the movie, the overall storyline, is in character with what was happening. Uh, you know, it's different making a documentary or making a, a, a drama. A docudrama. So, you know, Basil Norman did one hell of a job. I'm very thrilled with this movie. Uh, is there some things he had to cheat? Yeah, you, 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 you can't put 23 years into even two and a half hours <laughs> of the length of this movie. Uh, 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 there are certain things that embellish that are still in character. You know, I've had the opportunity to be in that situation on things I've produced. And sometimes, even as far back as the, the TV series on ABC, there are scenes uh, that were shot in Memphis and, and, uh, and the Delta. There are scenes like Elvis on Beale Street with a black artist named Moody Blue and this relationship. Now, uh, did that relationship ever happen with that one guy? No. But was it in character for who Elvis was and his love of Bill Street and black artists? And did he meet some? Yes. And I still get asked, is Moody Blue still alive? He never was. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is what Baz Luhrmann did beautifully. Is he put as much into the story and in character where you know you must take creative uh, freedoms, but he did it with care and research into who Elvis was. And it's a fantastic film, and, I, and I've heard that he has another four hours worth of footage that didn't make it into the film. Do you know what's gonna to happen to that four hours of footage? Because I think the fans would love to see it. I'm sure if, uh, well, there was a, there was a, uh, there was a rough cut that was actually four and a half hours long without takes from that not being in it. Uh, Bass has been cutting it down for the last year. And 
Priscilla and I were going to a screening uh, because they wanted us to see how we liked the film and to, to go on the promotion tour with Tom Hanks and Austin Butler and the cast and, uh, oh, I should say Luke Grayson, who plays me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, so right when he was getting ready to show it to us, he got the message from the Cannes Film Festival. You know, for us to consider this, we have to have a running time edit. So Baz had to leave Warner Brothers here, go back to Australia, where all the editing, where they shot everything, uh, and recut the film. Uh, so, you know, knowing Baz, I mean, uh, there's, I, I'd love to see, he had invited me way back, you know, way back to see um, the uh, screen test on Austin Buck, who I didn't know who he was. This was three years ago. Uh, we were promoting the HBO uh, Elvis Presley The Searcher, and we were up at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. And uh, that was the last of our promotion. We've done Memphis, Nashville, South by Southwest, and uh, uh, very proud of that project. Uh, I was executive producer on it. And uh, so, really tired. Priscilla's going to leave early the next morning. I'm sleeping in. We're in New York. A friend of mine at uh, RCA Sony uh, called, and uh, bottom line, you know, we had a drink, and uh, he said, do I have dinner tomorrow night? I said, I'm really beat. Call me tomorrow. And he called me the next morning and said, uh, I said, yeah, of course. Bob Santos, I said, sure, Bob. He said, do you mind if I bring Baz Luhrmann? I said, are you kidding? No, because I know Baz has been working for two years physically on this before three years now. And the idea came about 11 years ago, uh, between him and Gail Berman, uh, who was one of the producers on the show. Uh, he ran by his idea 11 years ago uh, to Gail Berman. And, uh, and I just learned that on the promotion tour. So, but yeah, you know, um, 68 to me is uh, last month, July. I look at the 68 comeback special and what that meant to Elvis in his career and how he gave him hope and turned his career around. Uh, last month, July 7th, 7-11, uh, July 11th, 68 years ago is when I met Elvis and helped promoting this film and being on a promotion tour, I think that the Elvis film is the 68 legacy comeback. It was 68 years ago when Elvis came on the scene. So it's, it's quite a, I just, I woke up one morning and I was telling my wife, saying, wow, you know, and I was going to do an interview. Is there anything I can do to tie this into? And I tied it into 68. And it is. I mean, you know, it is Elvis's second comeback. And I think this film definitely 
is bringing in more new fan, young fans who may have never really, you know, they may have heard the name Elvis, but didn't really know who he really was and why so many of us love him. And I, you know, it is a second coming of Elvis, plain and yep. simple. And it's going to be a lot of young people. Uh, I mean, you've got to download the soundtrack album. I mean, unbelievable. And, you know, you, you, you've got songs like Eminem and CeeLo. And Eminem talking about Elvis. Uh, you know, pioneering black music back in the 50s as a, as a white guy. And then Eminem with hip-hop and rap. And he said, we were in the same jailhouse, but it's, it's a great, upbeat song. But I think, to me personally, growing up in Memphis, and I, you know, I say I physically live in Hollywood, but my soul's in Beale Street in Memphis, and that's how I feel. And uh, um, I, I just think that uh, the most important thing about this film to me is the relationship that and the feelings that Elvis had, um, not just for the music, but for the artists and the real people. It really, there's been confusion over the years that, you know, Elvis was racist. He didn't have a racist bone in his body. I mean, you know, I guess because we were from the South or whatever, but, and this movie really, really, without hitting people over the head, really bridges that gap. And I know that Baz had some screenings with some very important uh, black people and artists, I mean, on the highest levels. And, you know, they were like, well, why don't I go in and see this Elvis movie? And they came out with a whole different perspective. To me, that's the most important thing with this movie because Elvis deserves to be remembered as who he was. Not who I want him to be or not what somebody else thinks he was to be. Who he was was the story. Nobody could have written it better than Elvis Presley. Very well said. And you know, and you bring something up because back in '68. The country was in such division, so much going on. You could tell that America was coming to a crossroads, a turning point. And then, El and then when MLK was assassinated and then Elvis sings, If I Can Dream. I mean, even today, that song is what we need today to bring our country back together because we're back to that same division. And as I was watching the Elvis movie, that whole area of the 68 TV special was absolutely my favorite because I didn't know the backstory. And yeah. now when I hear that song, that song has much a, a much stronger meaning to me today because what happened in 68 is happening in 2022. Ward, I think what I just said about the racial situation. You just took it to the next level. I totally agree. And I, you know, I happen to be the only person in that trailer 
dressing room trailer at MGM. The wind came up on the TV monitor uh, in the trailer. Breaking news. This is when breaking news was breaking news. Uh, from Memphis, Tennessee. We're here at MGM in Hollywood. So I'm standing in for Elvis in this movie called Hey, let's live a little love a little. And we hear breaking news from Memphis. We both stopped. And it said, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. And I just remember Elvis looking down at the floor because Elvis could recite, I have a dream, and sound like Martin Luther King. He was a fan of Martin Luther King's. And he just looked down with tears in his eyes and said, he always, he always told the truth. I'm glad that scene, Bass put that scene in the movie. And, um, but what you're saying is, I think if I could dream, I consider Elvis a writer on that song. Maybe the only song I consider him a participant writer because Steve Bender, Bones Howell wanted to interview Elvis for the 68. And somehow that didn't come about. So they wanted to do this song. They brought in this writer, Earl Brown. And Earl wanted to talk to Elvis about life, his philosophy, what he felt, where he was. And I guess they stayed together for two hours or more. And uh, I, lo I love the line, you know, I could dream when my brothers walk hand in hand. So I think, as you said, I, that was an extension of what we lived with, how far, uh, I'm so proud of Memphis, how far it's come, you know, uh, certainly musically, but I think politically too. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've had some great mayors, uh, white and black. And, uh, uh, but I think that music has done more for us understanding our brothers, different, far away, close, whatever, than politics or music. I'm not putting down politics or music. I, I require them both. I mean, you know, uh, our religion. But music translates where maybe because there's a feeling besides the voice. And I think that this movie, the Baswoman movie, has, has done that. Uh, Austin Butler, uh, he doesn't get an Oscar. I mean, we're watching him. Uh, Tom Hanks was beautiful, great guy. Uh, but yes, uh, I hope that this spurs uh, maybe not a movie or uh, but maybe some type of uh, next live aid or whatever to try to get people together. And I think we have great artists out there today that would chime in on that. You know, Jerry, as you were as you were saying that, the thought came to me that when Elvis sang, "If I Can Dream," 
at that time, that was their we are the world moment. Yes. We now need another. We are, you know, we need that now, you know, yep. and and tell you the truth, I personally, sometimes I just have these weird, crazy ideas, but I would love to see a modern day version to celebrate the 68 TV special and to see it done in 2022 and, and bring, if I can dream, and then bring this country back together. I mean, Elvis still has that power. Where'd you may see that? Well, I want a front row ticket when I see it too. <laughs> but you may see that. <laughs> well, let me ask you this because I want to ask you about you. And you worked alongside Martin Scorsese on the documentary Elvis on Tour. Uh, what did you learn from Martin that helped you to be an editor and to become a producer? Well, um, uh, he was Marty at the time, and young guy, just got off of Woodstock and relatively unknown. Um, but his intensity uh, was amazing. When I, you know, I was an assistant editor, when I go into his room, yeah, it was intense. And uh, so, and I was very young. This was one of my first editing jobs. Uh, and when the first, but it was, you know, one of them. And uh, so we didn't have a lot of conversation, except one night we, uh, we had worked really late uh, on editing of all the songs. And we were sitting out in the lobby for people to lock up. And Marty Scorsese says, Jerry, you know what I got? I thought, got a disease or something? I said, no. He said, I got That's Right, Mama, 68 Sun Records. And that's when I knew he really knew his music. But Marty is responsible for me to start having a working relationship creatively with Elvis Presley. Because now I, I was on the tour working for Elvis. Then I asked him if I, if, if these guys would hire me, would he mind if I quit and went to work in the editing? And he kind of knew I always had this, you know, uh, wanting to learn other stuff. So he, he basically, he said, okay. He wasn't thrilled, which is good. I, I didn't want him to be happy about me leaving, but I knew I wouldn't believe that. I'd see him every weekend. Anyway, uh, Marty did this great montage of Elvis's life from a child to current day at that time. And uh, Colonel came over one day. Uh, he did this at, uh, I think it's called American Associates. It wasn't at a big studio. And uh, he came over. And they were just showing him, this was like a three panel, it was a new thing at the time, editing stuff. And it just happened to have Marty's montage on it. And Colonel said, I'll drop that, Elvis don't want any old pictures. Now, I think what Colonel was referring to, and what Elvis had expressed, is he didn't want old pictures on new album releases. So anyway, I go to 
I was this house out here. Uh, I'm there one night. I said, Jerry, how's the movie going? And I said, no, it's really going good. I, like, I think you'll be really pleased with it. You know? I said, and this was the day Colonel came over. I said, there's, you know, there's this good editor that, uh, you know, did this montage, but uh, uh, Colonel, Colonel said that, you know, to drop it. And uh, he said, well, tell me about it. So I, I went to frame by frame detail. All of a sudden, I don't have any problem with that. So I go back to Bob Abel here, Addis, the producers, and I say, Elvis Presley said he has no problem with Marty's montage. It goes in the film. So various things like that over the years, that in 74, which most people don't know unless they read my book or whatever. Again, I was doing something outside of Elvis. Then Elvis asked me to open up his film production company, Elvis Presley uh, Enterprises Films, which we did. And uh, we had editing offices on Hollywood and Vine. I used a lot of researchers, uh, editors from Elvis on tour. Uh, there were two projects. There was a documentary like Bill Wallace from Memphis, uh, famous karate uh, champion, was one of the team. Uh, Ed Parker, the father of American karate, put together this team from American champs. We went to England, uh, sparred against their champs. We went to France. And Elvis's idea was he wanted to be like the old movie a producer that sits in the screening room, the little screening room, uh, where you see the dailies, what was shot the day before, and explain what's going on in karate. Because, you know, when Elvis came back from the army from karate, they didn't even want him to do it in movies because it was too fast. They didn't. Uh, so he kind of introduced that. So uh, not only was Elvis an underrated and developed, music producer, but he was an undeveloped, could have been a film producer. Uh, he could have been a Barbra Streisand, or he could have been a Clint Eastwood. I sat in those days with him when he still watched them at the studios, and he would talk about time and go, wow, I'm in every scene, but when I go see Brando, I don't see him for 10 minutes. I can't wait for him to get back on screen. I mean, he just had the feel. And he's why I went into film editing, because I really wanted to learn about film. And um, uh, then there was a second film that um, was going to be like a Dean Martin at Hill, where this guy was, uh, had a regular job in the daytime. He was a CIA at nighttime. And so Elvis was going to run a dojo in the daytime, but he was going to be a CIA agent, CIA agent at the time. And my big brother at Arkansas State uh, became a big producer out here, Rick uh, Huskin. Uh, everything from Charlie's Angels, he created SWAT, Cage County, Glenn Ford. He was the biggest television producer outside of Spelling at the time. He, did a lot of stuff. And so he wrote the treatment for this. 
this is again where you must let your artist if it's a genius artist like Elvis you've got to let them experiment you've got to let them have their creative and that was kept and uh, it's kind of depicted in the movie but Colonel did not want Elvis to go touring overseas and that really bothered Elvis and he didn't want him to do the film project which we were way into I was taking the books and canceling checks and having all this approved, you know. So this is all documented. In fact, an unfinished version came out that I wasn't involved with. I didn't probably finish things. Called the Gladiators. Uh, and it just didn't have, it was, you know, it just wasn't finished. And, uh, and I wouldn't ask to be involved, so. Uh, uh, but a lot of what we did is on well, did Elvis ever, I mean, did, could Elvis, did he ever have the power to override the Colonel's decision, especially well, that, if it came I, to certain movies? Well, that night in Las Vegas, uh, over the two issues, touring overseas and the production company, that Elvis and I were the co-producers together, uh, Elvis fired the company. That's how it really happened, up in the 30th floor. And uh, the only time I ever saw them in an argument. And, you know, I, and I don't want to leave this interview that Colonel Parker did everything wrong. Uh, he did a lot of stuff wrong, especially in the beginning. Did Colonel Parker love Elvis? Yes. Was there a great relationship? Yes. Did Elvis outgrow creatively and maybe too late? Yes. So there's no black and white. Uh, I don't, uh, I will say this, Colonel Parker could be a bullet. He's pissed me off before. <laughs> yeah. But he was not a dishonest man. He was a hardworking man. I wish he would have listened more to Elvis's creative needs later in life. And Colonel made some great creative decisions in the 50s. Kept his career alive while he was in the army by, you know, strategically putting out a nuclear song. And Elvis didn't have to do anything while he was in the army. So, you know, I, uh, I, I, I knew the Colonel as well and better than most. I mean, his wife, who just passed away a couple of years ago, said I was the closest person to him in his later years. But I was alone out with Colonel Parker from Elvis one day a week when we were at the studios. And I would drive the Colonel to Palm Springs uh, with the windows rolled up and him smoking a cigar. And him thinking, you know, you have to be careful with artists because Elvis wanted his personal life personal. Colonel said, you know, he, wanted, he, he didn't care about his personal life, but he did. I mean, Colonel cared about everything. So you had to be really in that relationship. You know, my loyalty and my love, and I worked for Elvis. But it was, you know, I needed to have a good relationship with the Colonel too, which I was able to do. So, you know, I, uh, uh, I have a long uh, 
dinner with Tom Hanks at his home, Priscilla and I, and his wife Rita. Uh, talking about the Colonel, we knew he was going to be the protagonist. We knew he was the easy to go to bad guy. But also wanting Tom to know his good side. You know, he's the guy that would call you up on your birthday and sing happy birthday to you. He's the guy to give you a little gift. He's the guy. And I always dreaded the day I had to work for him. Because it was so different from the lifestyle that I lived with Elvis. Seven o'clock breakfast. Sometimes we were going to bed at seven o'clock with Elvis. But every day I worked with him, after it was into it was always interesting. He was fascinating. You know, he was just fascinating. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, they were a great team. Well, then, well, let me ask you this, because, and I've seen, you know, I've seen the movie, I've seen Elvis and Nixon, and there are some points that, that really come out, and that is you, um, you really wanted to blaze your own path, you didn't want to be riding Elvis's cape. So how important was that for you personally to kind of find your own career outside of Elvis? Well, there was two things. That's a great question. There were two things. The hardest decision I ever made after going to work for Elvis, I was always going to be friends, but there's a, when you became part of the Memphis Mafia and you live with and travel with, that was really family. And as a kid, I dreamed about as I got older, I didn't think it was going to happen. And I was preparing my life, you know, and it would always be friends with us. Um, I think that um, uh, when I made that decision to look for a job in film editing and told Elvis that I was going to do this, uh, he had I don't know, a year or so before, a year or so, a couple of years after I went to work for him, so it was, I guess, 66 or something. I went into the den out here uh, in Bel Air, Beverly Hills, because uh, we were doing a movie. It was just Elvis sitting in there and he said, you know what's going to be the hardest thing for you to do? And I said, what are you talking about? He said to do nothing. I think he was talking about me. I think he was talking about him too. I, 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 I didn't digest it until years later. Knowing all this researching and everything, I, I know where, where he was coming from. And um, so that was a very difficult decision to then accept it and be part of the family and then to leave. But I felt the main thing I wanted out of the relationship with Elvis was friendship and respect. I didn't think you could have both. And I was the young guy in the group. Uh, Colonel Parker handled all the business. He did not want you to get, you know, you don't hand him music, you don't hand him a script, you know. So I made that decision and uh, I didn't know if I, you know, what would happen to the relationship, and 
I don't know, about two weeks after. Now, I moved from Bel Air, the richest place in America, to a little apartment, my wife and I, in Culver City, one room, bedroom, and I'm looking for a job and, uh, and have no money. So I get a call from Elvis. So, Jerry, you going to do that editing on the weekends? And I said, I said, no, I'm thrilled. Call me. You know, relationship's still there. He said, okay, uh, tell Joe how to get there. We'll come by and pick you up. We're going to Palm Springs for the weekend. So we continued that. And, uh, uh, but I think because of doing that, and then at a point later, he wanted me to come back and see if you can edit on my phones as well. Uh, there's a respect. And then he quit doing films. He did The Road, then I quit. I wanted to learn The Road. I went out with a little unknown artist. Uh, for a couple of weeks, we were, well, we went out for a year or so. And a couple of weeks, he was opening act for the Beach Boys. Uh, that was Billy Joel. Uh, and uh, I wound up being his tour manager for a year, and then we did an Australian tour where I was his manager. And then the Beach Boys asked me, in 1976, 75, 76, I worked for Billy Joel, Elvis Presley, and the Beach Boys. So it was a good year. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, then let me ask you this, because um, we, you know, I watched Elvis and Nixon. So I have one Nixon question, and I want to. It kind of backs up to what you just said. So, was it the improvised setup of the appointment with President Nixon that made you realize you had strong managing skills, or did you already? Well, that was yeah. That would be before '75. So by getting Elvis into the Oval Office, did that help you later on with what you've been doing for so well, long now? Actually, I wasn't working for Elvis. Uh, when we went to Washington. I was had, had gone up from these little editing things to Paramount Studios. And I was working as an assistant editor at Paramount Studios. And uh, uh, I get a call one night after I'm asleep, and it's Elvis. And I go, who is this? And he goes, it's me. I said, Elvis? He said, yeah. And I said, where are you? And he said, uh, I'm changing planes in Dallas. I'm coming into LAX, Los Angeles. Can you pick me up? And I said, well, who's with you? He said, I was trapped with the mantra. This is the only time he did. And he said, nobody. And I don't want anybody in the world to know where I am. So I got a car, because mine was old. Uh, went to the airport, picked him up late. Saturday night. He had promised the stewardesses that he would drop them off at their homes. Two o'clock in the morning, whatever, he did that. We went to a house called the Hillcrest House, uh, Beverly Hills. It was up for sale. And he said, let's just go up to the house, to the Hillcrest House. And uh, so it really late his time. And he said, you know what? Why don't we just uh, go to bed, you know, and you and I'll get together in the morning and, and have coffee. So 
So I said, okay, great. So here I am, you know, been in a lot of situations with Elvis, so I'm not totally shocked, you know. But he goes to the bedroom, goes to bed, and I'm saying, whoa, I'm the only person in the world that knows what Elvis Presley is, and like I'm going to go to sleep? You know, I don't think so. I mean, does Priscilla, does Vernon think he's kidnapped? I mean, and I'm not going to say anything to anybody when I gave Elvis my word, I gave him my word. So the next day he gets up, it's probably that day, and his two friends were sitting in the kitchen overlooking Los Angeles, beautiful view, having coffee, catching up. I don't know, we talk all afternoon about nothing, about everything, right? There's one thing somebody said, you had one wish, what would you do? I'd stay up all night and talk to Elvis. I don't know what about him, but it was, I just love it. Doing it. So towards sunset, he said, Jerry, I, this is the first I heard about Wilson. He said, I need you to go back, uh, go, go to Washington with me. And, uh, he had told me about the problems he had had coming in, changing planes in Dallas. The uh, Stewart uh, told him he couldn't bring his guns up. Elvis got in the because he had permits, he had three guns, and he stormed off the plane. The pilot came after him and said, Mr. Presley, it's okay, we can bring your guns. Imagine this happening today. <laughs> Not so, at all. <laughs> so he's telling me the story and everything, and then he's saying, I need you to take this flight. I, mean, I, was, I spent a year at ABC News editing to get to Paramount. I just got this job. I have to be at work in the morning. And he goes, he looks like a little boy. He goes, oh, okay, you know, I'll just go back by myself. Can't let him do this. I mean, he could have been in real trouble in Dallas. Luckily, this pilot was a nice guy and got him how this was. So I said, okay, Elvis. Let's do this. I said, nobody knows where you are. And I'm sure everybody's going to you. If I can call Vern, your father, and Priscilla back in person, because he told me he stormed out of He was mad at them because they were criticizing the money. If I could have either Sunny Red Security come up and meet us, money would take it uh, I will go back with you, and hopefully I won't lose my job at Paramount by losing one day. Uh, he said, okay, you know, if you knew what you're talking about, your reason, it's like, it, was, it was like the chips moment thing. You knew your stuff. Elvis knew you knew it. He was a very bright guy. He would get it. So I called back Graceland, you know, I asked Elvis, you know, well, he said, have Sonny come up. And uh, so I don't think Elvis at that point, we, we have no money. I have no money. Elvis didn't carry money. Uh, had a credit card, Elvis Presley, an Express credit card. 
So I make all the arrangements, hotel, uh, flights, all night flight from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it, it was a lot of arrangements to do. I mean, you know, when me, I'm traveling with Elvis Presley. And I think I know what he was going to do. To carry on the story about him wanting to travel overseas, he wanted, it was at the time called uh, the DEA, uh, it's the DEA now, at the time it was the Department of English Drugs. Today it's the DEA, same agency came from me. Uh, he wanted to meet with uh, a guy named uh, John Finley. He got in contact from the private detective that we knew. And uh, so um, that was his mission to go back because he wanted this badge that was accepted internationally because he was still preparing to travel internationally. He had had heavyweight death threats on his life. So he was reasonable and he was very proficient with guns and he had you know, badges that he went to the tra training and whatever, you know, so, um, but as we got boarding the plane, uh, he, um, there was a senator back in Cooks, because they couldn't fly first class politically, uh, and Elvis was back, he back to say hello and talk to him. And he came back from the flight, took off, and uh, I think that's where, as a secondary, uh, the Nixon thing came in. Because as we were flying, I said, Jerry, do you think uh, there's any stationary on this plane? Um, and I said, well, let me check. And, uh, and I asked the students. Uh, now, I think Elvis had only written three letters in his life. And uh, there was an American Airlines station. Uh, and he started riding. I'm sitting in the window seat, he's sitting next to me. And I always gave Elvis a weapon, who are you riding? Whatever, you know, let him do his thing. What he wants me to know, he'll tell me. If I need to know something, I'll ask him. So he spends a lot of time on this. And then he said, um, Jerry, would you proofread this? So I started reading this letter, and uh, I realized I'm reading the letter from the most popular, and you said powerful, but the most popular person in the world to the most powerful person in the world, President of the United States. There was grammatical things I could have changed, but the thing was written so much from his heart, his handwriting was all that. And I said, you know, you, I think, uh, I think it's perfect for me. You know, so we get to Washington, D.C. at dawn, and uh, it's still kind of dark out. And Elvis is wanting to deliver this to the White House. I'm saying, Elvis, I've been out for two days now. Let's go to the hotel, Hotel Washington, and made arrangements, you know, clean up and whatever, and, you know, 
nope, you have to drop it off now. So we go to the, I guess it was the west wing uh, of the White House. And Elvis has a cane. His hair is a little longer than normal. He's got a cape. It's still kind of dark. It's you know, dawn. And he said, you can just stay in the car. So he walks up and walks White House superstars were all over. I mean, not physically, but <laughs> jumped out of the car and I said, excuse me, guys, this is Mr. Elvis Presley. He just wants to drop the letter off for the president. And they warmed up immediately. No one went to the hotel. And uh, that's when Elvis uh, left me. He said, you wait here for a call from the White House. And he said, contact my public relations manager, I showed him. Uh, and I, I didn't want to hurt his feelings and tell him when I would get a call from the White House. But, and he went to John Finland's office. And he gave me the number and stuff that all these people around him did. But uh, when needed, Elvis could deliver himself. So, I don't know, I'm there about 40 minutes. And I get a call from the White House, from Bud Eagle Crump, who's on the Nixon staff. And, you know, I became good friends. Uh, and he said, uh, and he well, he didn't know if, if his cronies at the White House were putting him on. So he's kind of feeling me out and he said, well, you know, the president just read Mr. Presley's letter. They would like to meet him in 30 minutes. So, and this is when nobody was getting up on the hill, because I kept up with politics. I was a political science minor. So, I called the number Elvis gave me, and it was real bright. Yeah. And I said, uh, this is Jerry Schilling, I'm with Elvis Presley, and what you see there. Who is this? And it was, it was, it was friendly. And, uh, so Elvis gets on the phone and says, hey man, I'm not doing any good. Because Finlay would not give him the badge. And uh, so I said, well, look Elvis, the White House, I just got a call from the White House. The president wants to meet you. And he said, as a friend, most people would be lying to the White House. He said, you stand out in front of the hotel, and we had a driver. He swing by and pick you. I'm waiting. I see Sonny coming up from Memphis to take my place where I can go back, hopefully, and keep my job at Paramount. And I say, Sonny, just drop your stuff there. This is the limousine coming up with Elvis. We're going to the White House. And uh, that's how we got in the old room in the White House. <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of stories, but I'd you know, be doing like a Baz Luhrmann film. Yeah, well, let me, you know, Jerry, uh, my goodness, you know, there's there's just so much about Elvis, but about you, what's next for Jerry Schilling? What's next for me? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I, uh, It's a very exciting time uh, with the Beach Boys career right now. They are the only. They are the only band 
in America, maybe in the world, that can celebrate 60 years. So we've got a, uh, some record releases that are topping the charts. Deal flows and last week came out Sounds of Summer, big Times Square uh, digital billboard that's on there. Uh, a lot of the Elvis movies uh, around the country opened with a commercial for the Beast Boys new album, which I had nothing to do with, but I'm going to take credit for it. <laughs> so uh, I'm looking forward to, to this year, uh, my 16th year with the Beast Boys. I, 40 years ago, I managed them for 10 years. They've uh, been back for six years. Uh, uh, I will always pick and choose, but uh, will always, you know, my heart and soul is with Elvis uh, and always be uh, uh, maybe an interview, maybe a project, do some things. You know, you never talk about a project that hasn't uh, been greenlit until it comes about. But um, I, I see a couple of important things with Elvis. I see a really good year with the Beach Boys. And uh, I hope to go to the beach and, and, and not think about anything <laughs> for quite a <laughs> well, time. Well, how would you like to be remembered outside of knowing Elvis? I'd like to be remembered as a person who hopefully tried to always see both sides of the story. Uh, no matter what my opinion may be, to always have respect for the other person's opinion. And I would like to think that the projects and the personal appearances and things that I've had the opportunity and been blessed to do over the years help bring people closer together. Uh, that's about all we can do. That's probably the most important thing we can do. And if we can do that with respect and love, then I'd like to be with you. Absolutely. And ladies and gentlemen, as the song says, if I can dream, we need to walk hand in hand. And just like Jerry Schilling said, that's exactly what we need to be doing right now. So ladies and gentlemen, if you want to know the full story of Jerry Schilling, his life with Elvis and more, get his book, Me and a Guy Named Elvis, My Lifelong Friendship with Elvis Presley by Jerry Schilling. It is available on Amazon. And I will tell you this, many of you have already told me you have seen the brand new Elvis movie more than once, more than twice. Some of you have seen it more than four times. And for those of you who have not seen it yet, you need to get to the theater as soon as possible to see the greatest Elvis movie ever made. And again, Jerry, I want to thank you so much for honoring us with your time and your presence with us today. Ward, it's been a real honor. And uh, I love that you do your research. You know what you're talking about. And you ask questions that make me think. So thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. And ladies and gentlemen, stick around. I will be right back after these messages. <laughs> 